who was Jesus actually asking God the Father to forgive? When he said those words from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, who was he asking God to forgive? I suppose you could say he was asking for the Roman guards to be forgiven. They probably had heard some stories about Jesus, but they didn't know everything. They maybe heard that he claimed to be king of the Jews, but probably did not know that with that came a claim of divine authority. You could also make an argument that Jesus was asking God the Father to forgive the Jews who had put him in that place in the first place. Sure, they knew that he claimed to be the Messiah, but they didn't believe him. They thought he was a vigilante at best, trying to overthrow their power. But could Jesus have been talking about you? Could Jesus have been asking God the Father to forgive the sins that you don't even know that you do? you would evaluate your life and think through every moment of your day, are you always thoughtfully considering everyone's feelings, everyone's intentions, as you make actions and words and thoughts? Or is it more characteristic of your life that you're somewhat thoughtlessly chasing the next thing, the next relationship, the next job, the next paycheck, the next drink, the next iPhone, the next game, whatever it might be, you're going after it, and, and it doesn't matter who you hurt along the way. You know, sometimes it's, it's more frustrating to forgive somebody when they don't know what they do than if they even know what they did. You've been in this situation before, I'm sure, where, where someone has said something insensitively or done something thoughtlessly to you, and it's hurt you deeply, but they don't even know that they did it. It often happens with people who are the closest to us, doesn't it? Our spouses, our, our kids, our siblings, our parents. And it's not that you want to get revenge, right? It, it's not even that you want to publicly shame them. You just want them to know. You just want them to know that, that they hurt you. What kind of forgiveness could you muster in that situation? Could you have mustered the same type of forgiveness as Jesus? To call his father to forgive those who did not know what they were doing? Probably not. But the beauty of the first word is that Jesus does call that from God for you. He calls forgiveness for the many sins that you have committed that you didn't even know you've committed. Sins that fill up a list so long that if God were to read it out loud, eventually you would get to the point where you'd say, God, just please stop. Please stop saying all those things. And in the face of that list of offenses that have broken the world little by little every time you've done them, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. You know, when anyone goes into debt, somebody eats the cost. Whether it's the person who took out the loan paying back the debt, or it's the person who gave the loan simply eating the cost of the loan that they gave out. Somebody pays the price eventually. And when it comes to the massive debt of sin that you've built up with God, 
Jesus says that he will eat the cost. The first word from Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If you would have told him that later they would call this day Good Friday, he wouldn't have believed you. The law had caught up with him. He was finally getting what he deserved. He was like a man falling without a parachute, seeing where the end was going to happen, knowing that it was only a matter of time. Until Jesus said those words to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe you remember when you were a kid and you looked forward to stuff, whether it was summer vacation or some sort of holiday, and you would count down the days, right? Eight more sleeps, seven more sleeps, six more sleeps, until it was the day. The day that you knew that before the sun went down, something totally awesome was going to happen. I'm sure you had multiple experiences like that. I'm also sure that as you've grown up, you've found out that you go to bed dreading tomorrow more than you do looking forward to it. You're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not counting down the days. Sometimes you're hoping the days don't come. And this can be for a couple of different causes. Actually, psychologists say that um, one of the, the psychological traumas that go th- goes through many men's mind particularly is the imposter syndrome that they, they wake up every day thinking that today might be the day when I'm found out. And it's not that they have anything to hide. They're not cheating on their spouse, embezzling money, any of that sort of stuff. They, they really have nothing to worry about, but illogically, they think today is going to be the day. Everyone's going to figure out I'm not all I'm cracked up to be. I'm more of a failure than a success. I'm more of a liability than an asset. If you've ever felt like that, You wish that sometimes tomorrow wouldn't come. But for some of you, like the thief who hung next to Jesus on the cross, it's not illogical. There is something that you hope no one ever finds out about. And you know that it's probably just a matter of time until your kids or your boss or your spouse or your best friend finds out but you hope to God it do, they, that they don't. If that's how you feel, then you need to hear Jesus' words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today might not be the day. Tomorrow might not be the day. Next year, next decade, it might not be the day that anyone finds you out. In fact, you might make it to the end of your life without anybody finding out. But on that last day when you stand before God, it'll come to the surface. And on that day, if you do not trust in Jesus, you will have to own whatever that thing is. But if you trust that the man hanging on the cross tonight is there in your place, then you will hear what that other thief heard on that day. Today you will be with me in paradise. The second word from Luke chapter 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be crucified. 
One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. We live in a lonely world. Maybe you heard this a couple years back. The UK employed a new person in their government, the Minister of Loneliness. A recent study of Americans between the ages of 18 to 22 said that despite the hundreds or in some cases thousands of Facebook friends, the average American in that age group would say they have two or fewer people they really trust in their life. A recent study of Canadians said that 25% of all Canadians live alone and another 25% of all Canadians live with one person which means 50% of all Canadians are living with one person or less. We are a lonely world. And we could argue about the causes, I suppose. Things like travel have made it easier for people to move away from their family of origin to get a job somewhere else. The need for uh, an income that supports a certain lifestyle often leads people to avoid having kids or avoid getting married at all. But in the end, we have to treat it the same way God has always treated loneliness, by saying it's not good. In fact, when there was literally one person on the earth, God said about him, it is not good for the man to be alone. Do you feel alone? Right now, if we were to go around the room, could you name five people besides your spouse that you really trust if the statistics are right, you probably can't. And for Christians, it's a little bit of a conundrum because we think to ourselves, well, we have the greatest relationship. We have a relationship with God, right? I mean, sure, we would like to have friends, but man, if you're a Christian, that, that relationship between God should be enough, right? And yes, that is the most important relationship, and it absolutely can sustain all of your relational needs, but, but God does not leave you alone because he knows it's not good for you to be alone. If anyone knew God's grace, if anyone knew Jesus' compassion and mercy, if anyone knew that Jesus was the Savior, it was Mary, Jesus' mother. And she had seen him from the moment he was born. He'd watched him grow up into the man that he was. If anyone knew God's grace and God's love, it was her. And yet Jesus did not leave her alone. He gave his best friend, John, to her as a son. And you know, it's interesting. We don't know anything about John and Mary's relationship previous to this moment or really anything after. But you have to imagine that John and Mary, while maybe acquaintances, weren't exactly close. And yet now, John is supposed to take Mary into his house and treat her like his mother and she, in turn, is supposed to respect this man as if he were the man of her household. Pretty crazy, huh? 
So why did they do it? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Jesus tells them to do it. But I wonder if we could not think a little bit more of our own relationships like that. You look around your family, you look around your workplace, you look around this room, and there are people who you don't really know very well. People who, if it weren't for the fact that you were both attending the same church, you probably wouldn't cross paths with. And yet God has given them to you and has said, take care of them. It's easy to come into every relationship looking for what that person or those people are going to give to you, but that's not how God sets up relationships. He sets up relationships to be opportunities to give. So look around this room. Whether you get along or you don't, whether you know each other well or you don't, whether your worldviews align or they don't, these are your mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters. What if we had that attitude? That we look at the older members of our congregation, not as sticks in the mud, but as honorable, respectable, experienced people who want the best for our congregation? What if we look at the young people as not rebels without a cause, trying to change stuff for no reason other than they don't like it, and instead look at them as people with energy, an excitement about ministry? What if we saw the children of our congregation not as annoyances or hindrances, but as blessings to their families and to our congregation? What if we looked at each other that way? I'm sure it won't be easy, but Jesus told us to, just like he did for Mary and John. The third word from John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. On the cross, Jesus suffered in three ways. He suffered physically, which is probably the most obvious. The flogging, the beating, the crown of thorns, eventually nailed with spikes through his hands and his feet. You know, the way that you die when you're crucified is that you run out of energy to pull yourself up by the nails so that you can't exhale. Your lungs fill with fluid and you die of asphyxiation. Jesus also suffered psychologically. Not only had he endured a kangaroo court of a trial that convicted him of a crime he did not commit, he had done it all without eating and then was mocked the entire time as he was brought to the cross. Hail, King of the Jews. Thirdly, Jesus suffered spiritually, though. And that's the most important. On the cross, Jesus, while he hung there, called out to the God that he knew, my God, my God, 
as an obedient son who had done everything that God had asked of him. If anyone was pleasing to God, it was Jesus. And so he calls out for a favor. And like a child standing at the edge of a dark canyon, throwing a rock over the edge to find the bottom and not hearing anything. Like a child yelling in in the night for its mom, but not hearing anything, Jesus heard cosmic silence. When you pray, you have the promise that God will hear you. But in that moment, Jesus didn't. God had left him. You might suffer physically for the gospel at some point in your life. Right now, we don't really, but it might come to be that way sometime in this country. You might have to even give up your life for your faith. And you will probably suffer psychologically for the gospel. People will mock you, ridicule you, make fun of you, say how, you could be, how you're so stupid for following such a backwards ideology. But because Jesus suffered spiritually, you will never have to. Your prayers will never be met with cosmic silence. God will keep speaking to you, speaking the words of the gospel through your pastor, through your friends, through the scriptures that he has made sure have been preserved for 2,000 years. God be praised that Jesus was willing to be forsaken so that you could be chosen, to be tortured so you could go free, to be forgotten so that you could always be remembered. The fourth word from Matthew 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My friends and I have uh, an inside joke that we tell. We take completely mundane quotes and attribute them to really famous people. It sounds like a really dumb game, but uh, let me explain it to you. Uh, We would say say something like, uh, in the immortal words of Winston Churchill, I agree. It's really dumb. I agree. Um, But it kind of seems like that's what the Apostle John was doing when he wrote the fifth word. He says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Seems like kind of a non sequitur. How could that be the thing that would fulfill the scripture? Well, to understand, you have to know the two scriptures that John was thinking of. He was thinking of a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 5 in an earlier earlier parable that Matthew records Jesus telling. I'd like to read both those for you and explain how those words from Jesus fulfill the scripture. First, Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My love, my loved one, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He, dig, he dug it up and cleared it of any stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it only yielded bad fruit. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? 
when I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, with briars and thorns growing there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. Looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And then Jesus tells a parable from Matthew 21. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. See, God planted the nation of Israel like a vineyard. He gave it every advantage. He protected it, gave it land, gave it government, said he would watch over it. And the nation of Israel rejected him. Like a vineyard who would not produce fruit, God said, fine, have it your way. But when Jesus comes, he exposes a little bit more of what that parable from Isaiah was talking about. He looks the chief priest and the Pharisees in the eye and says, you are the tenants who ruined the vineyard. You are the ones who had authority over this nation to preach God's word, and you didn't. You used your power for your own gain. And the result is a vineyard that is not producing good grapes. It's producing terrible grapes, sour grapes, that taste awful. So what does Jesus say when he's hanging on the cross? I am thirsty. And then he receives a sponge of sour wine, which he drinks to the dregs, to show that even though the nation of Israel had completely rejected him, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had taken God's word and hid it from the people, he was still willing to die for them. He was still willing to drink the evil, sour grape wine that their works had produced. That's a kind of love you will find nowhere else. It brings new meaning to Jesus saying, love your enemies, doesn't it? 
but then to think that even though we, as we sit in this place, do believe in Jesus, do crave his word, we produce good works that are as tasty as sour grapes sometimes. And to know that even on our best days, the prophet Isaiah would say, our good works are filthy rags, worthless. In fact, you could even say sometimes that your good works are still sinful because you're still doing them with a sinful nature. Yes, God uses your good works for the good of your neighbor. Absolutely, God has prepared good works in advance for you to do, but if you think for a second that you're starting to pull it off in the Christian life, then you need to go back to the place where Jesus drank all of your evil. And remember that it isn't your product that's going to make you right with God. It's going to be the fact that Jesus, like a sponge, absorbed all your evil and died with it. The fifth word from John 19. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. If you were to take stock of your life, you would find that not much is finished. There's always something else to do, isn't there? There's always another place to be, another place to make sure the kids are, another bill to pay, another meal to make. Nothing seems to be finished. In fact, many of us feel like if we would take one day off of work, we would fall so far behind that we could never catch up because things aren't finished. And yet in the chaos of our running around, trying to always pull it off, to always be enough, to always finish the things that are expected of us, Jesus puts his foot down and says, it is finished. Look, you might actually need to stay busy in order to keep up your lifestyle, to provide for your family, uh, to keep your sense of security. But I gotta be honest with you, those things will always keep asking. They will never, never say to you, okay, that's enough, it's finished. No, they will always ask for more of your time, more of your energy, more of your money. It will never be finished. In the first century, when Jesus was crucified, in the Roman marketplace, paper was not as readily available as we have it today. So if you wanted to mark something as paid for, you would write on it somewhere one Greek word, tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is paid for in full, or the transaction is completed, or more simply, it is finished. That's the one Greek word that the Apostle John chose to record for us in John 19.30, tetelestai. And Jesus did not speak Greek, he spoke Aramaic, so he certainly did not actually say the word tetelestai, but John wanted his first century Greek readers to know exactly what that word meant to Jesus. It meant that the price was paid, the transaction was done, there was no red left in the ledger. Some of you know this, I have that word tattooed on my arm, tetelestai. 
Because I always wanted to remember that I, like something bought in the marketplace, have been paid for in full. When Jesus says that word from the cross, he says it about me. And just like a receipt is a legal binding document that cannot be reversed, this tattoo on my arm says the same thing. Jesus said, it is finished, which means that it is. And while you might not have a tattoo that says tetelestai on your arm, you do live under it is finished. To borrow a, a phrase from another pastor I love, every Christian lives their life under the banner of it is finished. So when you go to your job on Monday or Tuesday, you have nothing to prove. It's finished. Jesus has given you all the value, all the accolades, all the acknowledgement that you could ever want. So work like you got nothing to prove. When you look at your kids and, and worry about what they're going to grow up to be, remember that they run around with, it is finished, hanging over their little heads. That God hasn't asked you to save them, just to tell them that it's already finished for them. When you sit across from that person who has wronged you or said that thing that really hurts you, remember that above their head and above your head it reads, it is finished. You have nothing to extract from that person because you already have everything you need. In our life, nothing seems to be finished. But for Jesus, it is. To tell us, Ty, it is finished and you don't need to finish it. Now, Satan will try. He'll try to remind you of the things you still need to get done if anyone's going to love you, care about you, acknowledge you, want you around. But remember that none of them can speak louder than the words that Jesus yelled from the cross. It is finished. The sixth word, John nineteen thirty. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. This is the story of your death. Sure, it's the story of Jesus' death, of course. That's why we're all gathered here. But the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Romans, said something very interesting about Jesus' death in relationship to your death. Paul wrote this in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, when Jesus died, he died for you. And I don't know if you know this, but people only die once. And Paul says that through your baptism, you were connected to that death. That was your death. That was the death you deserved to die for all of your sins. So yes, this is Jesus' last day. But it's also yours. It's not just Jesus' funeral. It's yours. And I don't know if you've noticed, but you're still breathing. 
which means that the Christian faith does this amazing thing to you where it allows you to bypass your death, to skip over it, like skipping a track on an album, to not have to experience it, but to know that it was experienced for me by a man on a cross 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. And sure, yeah, there will, be co- there will come a day when, when you breathe your last and we'll put you in a coffin and we'll all be sad that we have to take a break from seeing you for a while. But brothers and sisters, it will not be the end. It will simply be the transition into something far better. The way that the Apostle Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians is that to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I I could keep living here on earth with all of you Christians, and that would mean good service for me and benefit to you, but wow, the other option is I could go to heaven, and that would be far better. So what if you walked out of the gym knowing that your death had already happened? That you were immortal now? Maybe some of you have seen the show The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's an episode of the show um, where the characters find out because a person traveled back in time to see them that they exist in the future and therefore they cannot die until they reach that time when that person came back. And so they do all these crazy awesome things because they know they exist in the future. That has to be the way that it happens. They have nothing to lose. you have the same promise from Jesus. That as Jesus breathes his last, it is your death. And because he died and you were united with him in your baptism, you will also be reunited with him in a resurrection like his that we will celebrate on Easter. So as Jesus breathes his last and the last candle is extinguished, remember that it is your death that is being died and that you get to watch it as one who has passed through the flames, as one who is exempt because Christ's blood has paid for your soul. The seventh word, from Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Matthew writes, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He himself bore our sins in, the bo- in his body on the cross so that he might, we might die to sins and live for righteousness. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Should trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.